Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Man, well, thank you for sharing, Len. That was, that was so beautiful. Just such a beautiful posture to take in prayer, to just say thank you, Jesus. Well, uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Gavin, and I serve here on pastoral staff with Chi Alpha. Um, I graduated from UVA in 2020 um, with a degree in chemical engineering, and I've been here since. Uh, I got a picture of my family. feel obliged to do that because people want to see the dog. Um, that is my wife, Kristen, and our dog, Eleanor. There you go. That's me. So, it is my joy to continue our series through the Gospel of Mark that we have been calling The Crown and the Cross, because as we trace through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus is coming to establish a new kingdom as a new king, and what we'll see by the end of the semester is that his coronation happens on the cross. So, tonight we are going to actually rewind the story a little bit from where we've been to look at a story that Jesus tells while sitting on a boat to a large crowd of people. But before we get to that, story time. It was the spring break of my first year of college, and I had felt like the Lord was telling me to go on a spring break trip to a predominantly Muslim country. Now, for for reference, I had never been out of the country before unless you count a short trip to Canada. Um, but on March 4th, 2017, we touched down in the Arabian Peninsula, our team of about six people, and we arrived and were taken straight to the house we were staying. We dropped off our luggage, we put our things away, and then we immediately got back in the car and the missionaries drove us of all places to the mall. And they said, okay, Gavin, You and John Shin, the only other guy on this trip, are going to go talk to people about Jesus in this mall. It's like, great, we're on a mission trip, we might as well. One problem, neither of us speak Arabic, and neither of us have any idea what kind of cultural context we're walking into. And so here's this white dude and this Korean dude walking around a mall in the Arabian Peninsula trying to tell people about Jesus. What do you do? Well, we had an idea. We had been given a phone by the missionaries, and so we walked up to this stranger, this dude sitting alone in the food court of this mall, and we pulled out this like 10-year-old-looking Android phone and pulled up Google Translate. And we're like, we're going to have a conversation. And so we just start typing things into Google Translate and just turning the phone to this stranger hoping that the Arabic in Google Translate is the same Arabic in this country. It wasn't. (laughs) We did not get very far. If I recall, we did not even get the guy's name, but we were there going back and forth trying to understand each other for like what felt like at least an hour, but it may have only been a few minutes. The point is, this was a crazy cross-cultural experience where the language barrier and the culture barrier were so high that it was like, we have no idea how to talk to each other. We were totally lost, and we had no idea what was going on. 
You ever been somewhere like that where the cultural barrier just feels so high and you're a little bit confused and you're like, well, someone, please translate for me. Sometimes this is exactly what reading the Bible can feel like, if we're honest. We're reading a book that was written in three different languages over the course of many, many years by many different authors in many different cultural settings and in a variety of literary styles. My point is simply that reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. And there will be moments that as you read, you feel like a foreigner just trying to make sense of some things, turning Google Translate back and forth saying, what is going on? And if you come to the Bible and you're like, this is a hard thing to read and I don't really know what I'm reading at times, you're in good company. And if you're new to reading the Bible, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and hopefully this is not turning you off from ever trying to read the Bible. But tonight, as we come to our text, we are going to look at a passage where Jesus tells a parable. And a parable is something that we're not overly familiar with in our cultural setting. But as you read the Gospels, you'll see that parables were one of Jesus' main ways of communicating with his followers. Merriam-Webster defines a parable this way. It says, A usually short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. And that definition is fine. It's just not how Jesus used parables or why he used them. For us as 21st century Westerners, reading the parables of Jesus is a cross-cultural experience. When we think about communication, we often think about taking an abstract idea and making it more concrete with a story or an illustration. You think of last week at M&L. Maddie told the story of her swim coach, seeing her and thinking, yes, she's got what it takes, and calling out her skills in the big race when he needed to. And that's a lot like how Jesus sees the woman in the crowd who touches the hem of his garment and says, your faith has made you well. Jesus sees the woman, Maddie's coach saw her. Get what I'm saying? But Jesus' parables oftentimes left his hearers perplexed. They were confused. They had more questions than answers. And as we'll read tonight, even his most committed followers were just baffled by what he was trying to say, and they came to him with questions later. So, how did Jesus use these parables? One scholar, N.T. Wright, puts it this way. As part of his campaign, Jesus told stories. They were, for the most part, not simply illustrations, that is, preacher's tricks to decorate an abstract thought or complicated teaching. If anything, they were the opposite. Jesus' stories are designed to tease, to clothe the shocking and revolutionary message about God's kingdom in garb that would leave the listeners wondering, trying to think it out. Whatever the parables are, they are not, as children are sometimes taught in Sunday school, earthly stories with heavenly meaning. Rather, they were the expressions of Jesus' shocking announcement that God's kingdom was arriving on earth as in heaven. I couldn't say it better myself. The point is that if we try to read these parables with the same lens of Jesus taking an abstract thought and making it more concrete— 
We're going to be sorely disappointed. Jesus raises a lot of questions, and confusion and curiosity is actually sometimes the right response if it leads you to a deeper pondering of the things that Jesus is trying to teach us, if it brings us to that place of reflection. So let's read the words of Jesus together, and then we'll talk about our questions. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, so you can turn there, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the peoples were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plant, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. All right, let's pause. So here are the questions that are running through my head, and maybe some of them are running through your head. Who is the farmer? What is the seed? What do the different types of soil represent? Why does the farmer sow all over the place? I bet the the farmer could have figured out that the seed that he throws on the path is not going to grow. Number five, what are the birds, the sun, the thorns? What are they supposed to represent? And finally, what is the crop? There are a lot of questions that are probably popping into your head. But thankfully, Mark interrupts this story to give us a peek behind the curtain and give us a little bit of an explanation. And Mark does this thing in his gospel pretty frequently that scholars refer to as a Markin sandwich, where Mark tells a story... He interrupts it with something in the middle, and then he tells a parallel story on the back end, and it kind of all sandwiches together. And so what we just read is the first slice of bread in our sandwich. What we're about to read is kind of the meat in the middle, and then he'll give us the explanation at the end to bring the whole thing together. And he does this to draw our attention to the thing in the middle, to really hone our focus, to make you notice the contrast, and uh, we're going to draw some key observations eventually from that. But let's keep reading. In verse 10, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. 
Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So if you're tracking with all of that, Jesus answers some of our questions And raises more. He tells us that the seed is the word of God and that the soils are people. And this is actually a very common image in the biblical imagination that people are formed out of the dirt. It comes out of the creation story in Genesis 2 where it says that God formed the human out of the dust of the ground. In the Hebrew, it's actually a bit of a word play that God formed Adam, the human, out of the Adama, the ground. Um, it's equivalent in English to be saying like God formed the human out of the humus, the dirt. And so there's this wordplay, this biblical association in your imagination that God is connecting humans as dirt creatures. And actually uh, the word that is used uh, in Hebrew, Adama, for the ground is the same word that when it's translated into Greek is uh, soil in this parable. So there's this, this link that's happening here that, that uh, humans are connected to the dirt. Short aside, anyways, hold that in your mind. Humans are dirt creatures in the biblical imagination. Continuing with the parable, the birds are Satan. Um, another quick aside, in our first year of marriage, my wife and I had uh, two birds uh, die in our house. Uh, They weren't dead when they got there, but they were dead when we found them. Um, Anyways, there's something there about birds being evil. Um, (laughs) Anyways, the sun represents trouble and persecution, and the thorns represent the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. Still with me. More questions. So Jesus answers some, but he raises plenty more. In my mind, if I'm the soil, what kind of soil am I? How do I become good soil if I'm not already? Can bad soil become good soil? Can good soil become bad soil? What is the fruit in this picture? And also, what in the world is that quote from Isaiah all about? Hold these questions in your mind. Just put a pin in them for now. We'll come back to a lot of these But where we're going is we're going to take a look at this parable from the perspective of the sower, and then we're going to take a look at the perspective of the soil, and then we'll come back to this weird Isaiah quote and hopefully put the pieces together to make something beautiful at the end. Great. So looking at this from the sower's perspective, Jesus, in one very real interpretation of this parable, is like, possibly giving us a picture of what is happening in real time. He is speaking to such a large crowd of people that he is being pushed off the shore. He has to stand in a boat to be able to speak to the mass of people. And in many ways, what he is saying is that in a crowd this large, there are going to be a variety of responses. There are going to be people who respond well and people who don't. And in essence, he's saying that Speaking the word to this crowd is a real-time demonstration of what is happening in this parable. It's like throwing seed to every little corner of the field and just hoping something sticks. And my first thought when I read this is that this sounds incredibly wasteful. 
What farmer would take seed that this is going to produce their livelihood and just throw it to the corners, throw it onto the path, throw it among the rocks and the thorns when you can clearly see what's going on? But one commentator I read put it this way. It says, So intent is the farmer on a harvest that he sows in every corner of the field in hopes that some good soil might be found somewhere. It's beautiful that far from reflecting like a careless nature in Jesus, it's a picture that Jesus is so intent on spreading the word of God far and wide that he's sowing to the hardest of hearts, to those with rocks and thorns and all kinds of issues. He's extending the invitation to the kingdom broadly. He's inviting all people to respond to the good news of the kingdom. But he also knows that people will respond in all kinds of ways. That not everyone is going to respond positively. In this crowd, there would have been Pharisees and teachers of the law whose hearts were so hard that this would have been just like throwing seed against a brick wall. And so the enemy was able to snatch these seeds away without any issue. There are also those in the crowd who, as it'll say later in the Gospels, follow Jesus because of the miracles. When he feeds the 5,000, there are people that follow behind him just looking for their next meal. But when Jesus starts talking about taking up your cross and denying yourself and following after him, they, they fall away quickly. And then there are those who, like the rich young ruler, the deceitfulness of wealth will come in and choke out the seed. And then there are the 12 and the others referenced in verse 10 that, that are like the good soil. They're the best picture of this that we have, who receive the word at once, accept it, and bear fruit for the kingdom. In essence, Jesus is saying that the reality of the kingdom of God is that it's open to anyone who hears the word and responds. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't tell this parable as one of the, the, the word of God going forth and breaking up the hard ground or the farmer getting his hands dirty and clearing away the rocks and pruning away the thorns. The farmer sows the seed and in three out of the four types of soil that he comes across are never going to bear him any fruit. And this is how Jesus talks about his kingdom coming to bear in the world. Isn't that encouraging? But in the strangest turn of events, an astounding harvest comes out of the small patch of good soil. And people point out that that this great harvest is a clue that the growth is only dependent on God. It's a sign of God's providential power, that God is at work, hidden and unobserved in Jesus and the gospel to produce a yield wholly disproportionate to human prospects and merit. Beautiful. God's word is sown into the soil of our hearts as a gift of grace. It is a remarkable act of grace that God would sow far and wide, that even the hardest of hearts are not beyond the reach of the word of God. That's beautiful. That's good news. The issue that we usually have with this passage is that Jesus all but guarantees that people still won't respond well. We love hearing that Jesus says the word of God will be sown far and wide, and we really struggle that there will still be hard-hearted. We hate hearing that even then, they probably won't respond well.
So with that, let's turn our attention to reading this passage from the perspective of the soil. This is where it hits close to home because it's going to ask the question of what kind of soil are you and what kind of soil am I? And the biggest question running through your mind is how the heck do we know? How do I know what kind of soil I am? And I really thought about getting creative with this and making like a BuzzFeed quiz of like, respond to these three teachings of Jesus and we'll tell you what kind of soil you are. Um, But I didn't. Uh, One, because I'm really not that creative and funny. And two, as we'll see, these categories are not static. They're dynamic. It's not once bad, always bad. This is a moment-by-moment decision of, that uh, we decide how we will receive the word of God, what we'll do with the seed that is sown into our hearts. Make sense? Okay. So from the point of view of the sower, this is about grace. God's word being spread freely and widely to the edges of the field. But from the perspective of the, so- of the soil, this is about action. How will the soil receive the seed? For some, the seed doesn't survive the attacks of the enemy. And it's snatched away before it has a chance to take root. And this reality is not one that we talk about often, where there is a real enemy of our souls that wants to use the hard-heartedness that we have to snatch away the seed of the word of God. And it sounds foreign and like mythic to us, but it's real to Jesus and the authors of the Bible. Jesus doesn't see him coming into the world to oppose sinful people. He comes into the world as the long-awaited Messiah opposing the spiritual evil that has run rampant, vandalizing God's good world for generations and generations. And so Jesus, when he's talking about the inbreaking of his kingdom, he sees it as a battle, that his kingdom is coming up against a kingdom that is already in place. And so when he talks about a spiritual evil, he talks about it as a real thing. There is a real element to to which that um, the word of God being sown into a human heart is a spiritual battle. However, for others, Jesus says that the response will be one of immediate joy. They receive it at once with joy, but it will be short-lived because of the trouble and persecution that comes. And I think we all have probably had a moment like this where we're on the mountaintop, maybe it's at a retreat and you're, you're feeling that retreat high and things are going really, really well and then Monday morning comes around and it's suddenly a lot harder to follow Jesus. And as it turns out, following Jesus is not the most popular lifestyle choice you could make um, and it's hard. And so when trouble and persecution beat down on you like the heat of the sun, will you bear fruit or will the seed wither and die? And then the third type of soil that Jesus talks about is where the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things choke out the word of God like thorns. Now, doesn't that sound like a word for our culture? John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, says that we live in a third soil culture. We swim in cultural waters that left unchecked will easily choke out the seed We're constantly being bombarded with narratives about what is the good life and we're drowning in the noise of doing, buying, and achieving more and more and more. And I don't think I have to tell you this, but there are so many competing stories about how you get the good life. 
whether it's by getting into your top choice of major or landing the perfect relationship or getting the perfect job. There are so many different directions in which the affections of our hearts can be pulled. And a lot of this is not inherently bad things. But the point is how we define the good life defines how we will respond and receive the word of God when it's sown into our hearts. Is that making sense? So when you hear the word of God, will you accept it and bear fruit or will the culture's vision of the good life and the worries that come with it choke it out? And finally, when Jesus gets to talking about the good soil, ultimately he says, these are the people who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. It sounds so simple. Hear the word, accept it, bear fruit. That being said, we love hearing the first part of this, that it is God's grace that the word is being sown far and wide. And we really struggle in hearing that I also have a part to play, that it is about my acceptance of God's grace as well. We want the quick fix life hack transformation. We want to pray a prayer and it just happens. Like, um, I, I think of this like Tony Stark, Iron Man, like the, the suit that he has and when he needs something, when he needs a software update or he's needing information, he just calls up Jarvis and he's like, all right, this is what I need. And he gets the upload and it just happens. We like that kind of spirituality where we get the zap from heaven and it's like, ah, oh, the peace of God. Or, you know, you got that big test coming up and you're like anxious out of your mind and you're like, oh man, you know, God, if I could just have your peace right now, that'd be really great. No, I'm really stressed. And just that prayer and peace of God, it's amazing. It just melts away. It doesn't often happen like that. You know, like it's really great when it does. We, we celebrate those moments where we have those encounters with God and it is like a touch of heaven coming onto earth. But that's just not how it often works. Character transformation, to experience the peace of God as an ingrained reality of our being takes time and repeated practice and rhythms of following Jesus over the long arc of our lives. We have to choose day after day to live in this rhythm of following Jesus and trusting that his grace over time will form us into people who can abound in the fruit of the Spirit. And we really struggle with this. We really struggle when we start to think about our bearing fruit being dependent on how we respond in action towards the Word of God. This passage's challenging yet beautiful reality is that it shows us a picture of how true life transformation happens. It is by the grace of God but God also allows our active participation in our transformation by accepting the word that he sows. Dallas Willard puts it brilliantly. He says, true character transformation begins, we are taught to believe, in the pure grace of God and is continually assisted by it. Very well. But action is also indispensable in making the Christian a truly different kind of person. One having a new life, in which, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 states, old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. And failure to act in certain definite ways will guarantee that this transformation does not come to pass. To spell it out simply, it is God's grace in conjunction with our action that leads to transformation. This is like the 30,000 foot flyover of the Christian life. 
And you can zoom in on both of these elements, God's grace, our action, character transformation, to see what it actually means to live this out over a lifetime. To ask yourself the question of what does it actually mean to position myself to regularly receive the grace of God? What does it mean to cultivate habits or spiritual practices to integrate into my life to become the type of person who naturally accepts the word of God and bears fruit and abounds in the fruit of the spirit? What does it actually mean to experience true character transformation at the very core of my being? Simply put, it is by God's grace with our simple cooperation that God can form us into the image of Jesus. But it will take a lifetime to live out these truths. And whether we like it or not, God does not override the human will. He never forces the rocky ground to bear fruit. He never softens the hard heart beyond its own will. And we don't get to live isolated from the forces in our culture that deform us. We live in a world that is challenging to our formation But the question is, will we accept the word of God and produce a crop? Finally, let's go back to the middle of our sandwich and talk about Isaiah. At the center of this narrative block, Mark has taken things out of chronological order. The crowds disappear and they'll reappear back in 21 uh, or verse 21 with the next parable. But he uses this tool to hone our focus to look at this center block. And we don't know who these others that are gathered with the 12 are, um, but we know that this is a moment where Jesus has pulled the crowd, or, or the, the few have pulled Jesus aside and said, we have questions. Um, and notice what isn't happening here. It's really confusing. There's all this stuff about Isaiah and you know, the secret of the kingdom of heaven, and we're a little confused, and we don't really know what's going on. But notice what isn't happening. Jesus is not handpicking a few and saying, you are the most qualified, you're the cream of the crop, you're the best of the best, to you guys, I'll give you the secret, to everybody else, I'll keep them on the outside. Jesus is not playing hard to get here. He's not just saying, like, you guys are my favorites, I'll tell you the truth, but everyone else gets the mystery. These are just the few who have been sitting with the teaching long enough to raise their own questions, do their best to obey it, and then be like, Jesus, we still don't know what's going on. These are the people who Jesus just explained the parable to. These are not the people who got it right off the bat and they're like the best. These are the people who came with their honest questions, brought them to Jesus, and Jesus met them in their questioning and just said, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to meditate on this, to let it run around in your mind and raise more questions and then bring them to me. This is exactly what's supposed to happen. The difference between the seed that bears fruit and the seed that dies in the sun is just about faithful hearing and obeying the word of God. That's it. It's not about the most impressive resume. It's not about the disciples being God's favorites. It's just the fact that they listened, they did their best to obey, and then they still brought their questions back to Jesus. And if you don't believe me, let's make a quick observation Um, with the text. In the Bible, uh, this was written during an oral or a predominantly oral culture. And so before the advent of the printing press and you could have your nicely bound leather codex Bible in your back pocket, uh, the way things were emphasized uh, 
when you couldn't bold something or italicize or underline it was by just repeating it over and over and over again. A repeated word or phrase is a key when you read the Bible to say the author is trying to point something out to me here. And in this passage, there's one phrase or one word that is repeated more than any other. It's the word hear or also translated listen. It shows up nine times in the span of 20 verses. And if you're only counting eight on that screen, it's because ever hearing is the word repeated twice. It's like hearing, hearing. So really emphasizing this point that Mark is just underlining it, circling it on the page, putting it in bold. The secret here, the key to the Christian life is to just hear and obey the word of God. To just listen and obey, repeat. And so, um, one other observation. The first three types of soil, uh, the word that's used for here is in the Greek, what is known as the aorist tense. And I don't read Greek, but I read people who do, and they tell me this. Um, And that just means that it is in the past tense as a singular action. Meaning... The first three types of soil, it's like in one ear, out the other. It's a short, superficial hearing. It happens once and they move on. But when Jesus speaks of the good soil, he speaks of it in the present tense, implying that it's happening continually and it's an ongoing hearing. It's a meditative hearing that hears, receives, and bears fruit. Point is, it's not about performance or having the most impressive resume. Mark points us to this fact that it is simply the people who one step at a time, one day after another, walk this out. Just listen, obey, repeat. Listen to the word of God, accept it in my life, and bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Now, let's be honest, this all sounds good, but when you read the passage from Isaiah that Jesus quotes, it seems pretty confusing. Um, It's there in your Bibles, or we can put it back up on the screen. It says, they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. When you read this, it honestly kind of sounds like God wants people to hear, but never understand. Like Jesus is trying to keep some people out. If Jesus really thought that the message of the kingdom of God was so important, why wouldn't he just spell it out plainly for them? You ever ask that question? Why go through the difficult work of meditating on the word of God, letting it provoke the questions to be able to bring them to Jesus? Why not just spell it out plain and simple so all could understand? The answer to this, I think, is both practical and personal. Practically speaking, Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God, but he came to do it in a world in which there was already an established kingdom. There was an anointed high priest who would be threatened by Jesus coming as another anointed high priest. There was uh, Roman occupation who said that Caesar was Lord and Savior, and so Jesus coming threatened that rule. And so by speaking in parables, Jesus was able to make disciples of the most committed few and make it last a few years before he got killed. And make no mistakes, it is by people coming to understand what Jesus was saying in these parables that he was arrested. But on a personal level, Jesus saw himself 
as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophetic mantle, that he was playing out Isaiah's role in the story of Israel. He was coming both as king and as prophet, inviting people to meditate on the word of God. And so he speaks in parables not to confuse them, but to test the soil, to invite people into this place of meditating on the word of God, to slow down enough to really let it sink in and speak to your heart. Ever hearing but never understanding is exactly Jesus' depiction of the in one ear, out the other, hearing of the bad soil. So as Jesus speaks to his followers, he is saying, it is by God's grace the word is being sown broadly, but even then it is how you respond to the word of God that is key to what type of soil you become. And even in this parable, Jesus is pulling on a message given by Isaiah in chapter 55, where he likens the word of God to a seed that goes out from the mouth of God that goes into the soil and does not return void. And it says at the end of the the chapter in Isaiah that uh, the thorns will all be taken away and they'll be replaced with fruit trees. It's exactly what Jesus is saying in this parable. So hopefully to start connecting some dots as we close. Uh, And worship team, this is a good time to come back. Um, When we come to this story, we hear Jesus speaking of the word of God going forth like a seed and bringing life out of the dirt. This is starting to sound familiar. And that new life will have a choice of will it bear fruit or will it let the seed wither and die? It sounds so similar to the creation story. That God forms human out of the dirt and he gives them the calling to be fruitful to bear fruit. He places him in the garden and he says, be fruitful and multiply, but the way to life is by listening and obeying the word of God, by responding to the word that is being sown into your heart, to not take from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. In the same way and using the same language, Jesus is telling us that the way to life in his kingdom is by listening to and obeying the word of God. Jesus is pointing us to the fact that to enter the kingdom of God is to re-enter the Garden of Eden, to experience the life that was offered to Adam and Eve in the garden and was forfeited by their choice to not listen to the voice of God. And this is the same choice that Jesus is putting in front of us today. Will you listen and obey the word of God or will you let it go in one ear and out the other? Our faith is dynamic. We have to make this choice day after day of whether we will choose to listen and obey the word of God or will we buy into the lies of our culture? Will we listen to and obey the word of God or will we wither under the trials and persecutions of life? Will we listen to and obey the word of God? Will our hearts remain hard and impenetrable to the seed that God is trying to sow? This is the invitation of Jesus respond receptively to the grace that he offers to listen to the word of God and day after day be formed more deeply into his image and to bear fruit for his kingdom let's stand and close in prayer
So in a passage that is all about listening to the word of God, it felt only appropriate that we'd end our time a little bit differently. Um, And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a moment to just listen for the word of God, to listen to the voice of God speaking to you individually. And so what I'd invite you to do is to just place your palms up out in front of you. It's a posture of just receptivity before the Lord and openness to receive and hear from him tonight. And I invite you to close your eyes as well to just fix your full attention on Jesus. And we're just going to hold this posture for for a minute or so. We're just going to listen to God's invitation for us. And as we do this, and encourage you to just be open to what the Lord might be speaking. And then I'm going to give some invitations and we're going to respond in worship. So come Holy Spirit. God, we want to receive from you tonight. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. so grateful that this is a picture of what is happening here in this room that for those of us tonight who hear the word accept it and bear fruit for your kingdom the old has gone the new is here you are doing a work of recreation in the soils of our hearts and so God we are just so grateful so grateful that it is by your grace that your word is being sown far and wide and we thank you that you give us the opportunity day after day after day to respond in acceptance so Lord I pray over each and every person in this room that you would meet them exactly where they are that they would respond to the word that has been sown by you through your Holy Spirit into their hearts and that as we go into this fall break that it would be a season or a week of rest and just growing and receiving from you Jesus Lord I pray that a great joy would follow these students around wherever they go that they would sense your presence going with them into this break and that you would be the one inviting them each and every day to just turn their attention back towards you Lord, I pray that you'd give us the the spiritual just steadfastness to continue to make this choice day in and day out to withstand the, the trials that come and the worries of life. Lord, keep our hearts soft and help us to readily receive the word, to receive it with joy and to grow the roots that can withstand the trials. We are so grateful that we don't do this journey alone. We do it in community and we do it through the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us. God, we are so, so grateful. We, We thank you for tonight and we give you all the glory. And it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. And now for the benediction. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
Well, you guys have a great fall break and we will see you back here after that. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com. 